Today we'll begin a new series on the book of Jeremiah, which will take us through about midsummer. And I would urge you to be reading ahead. Read the book of Jeremiah, memorize uh, verses that strike your heart, and uh, read uh, helpful study guides to the book. We have uh, the historical background as an introduction to the book. First, we have Jeremiah's ancestry in verse 1. The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priests that were in Anatoth in the land of Benjamin. Uh, Jeremiah was what we'd call today a preacher's kid. His uh, father was a priest. Maybe this was Hilkiah the high priest who discovered the book of the law when rummaging around in the temple. Josiah, the young king, had uh, instituted a reformation, and when this book of the law was discovered, it greatly furthered the reformation as the word of God had been lost for several generations, and uh, idolatry had been rampant, and the nation was in decay. Uh, Josiah introduced reformation, and the discovery of the word helped. Uh, The town of Anatoth was... uh, city of priests, about three or four miles from Jerusalem. We see a little bit about Jeremiah. And the time in which he ministered is brought before us in verse 2 and 3. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. He ministered or prophesied under five kings. Three of them are mentioned here. Two are not mentioned because their reigns were only three months long. Of those mentioned, Josiah was the last good king. Josiah instituted a thorough reformation, but it was not really effective in penetrating to the grassroots and heart of the people or the priests. And when Josiah died, it didn't prove out that he had really succeeded in turning the nation back to God. And uh, the nation began to continue the rapid rush downhill that it had been in when he came to the throne. And we notice the solemn note on which uh, this historical background ends, unto the carrying away of Jerusalem captive. Uh, Jeremiah sought desperately to call his nation back to God. He announced the judgment that was sure to come. Uh, But... uh, He didn't get a hearing, really. And uh, so at the end of his period of prophesying, Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon and carried off captive by Nebuchadnezzar. Isaiah warned of this years before to the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom had seen what happened when the northern kingdom didn't respond, and had seen Assyria conquer the northern kingdom a hundred years before. And now she proceeds right down the same path. It was a difficult and discouraging ministry, and it's particularly relevant for our day. Because our nation 
is very much in the same situation that the southern kingdom of Judah was in when Jeremiah addressed himself to the people and to the princes and to the priests. Francis Schaeffer is a spokesman to our day and for our day, one of the great Christian thinkers. In his book, Death in the City, he says that uh, the book of Jeremiah is addressed directly to our situation in our Western culture. And he speaks of what a sad thing it is to see what's happening in our culture. He said, it is a horrible thing for a man like myself to look back and see my country and my culture go down the drain in my own lifetime. He said, we need to understand what's happening, uh, that our culture and our country is under the wrath of God because we've turned our back on God. The Supreme Court decision about prayer in the public school, that was just a manifestation of the nation's defection from God. It was an official action on the part of our highest court, but it manifested what had taken place in the hearts of the people, a defection from God. And uh, he goes on to say uh, that we shouldn't be surprised <clears throat> at the disintegration of our culture into a post-Christian culture. We should have been able to predict it. <clears throat> he says, I'm amazed at the evangelical leaders who have been taken by surprise at the changes that have come about in our culture in the last few years. We should have predicted them. There's bound to be death in the city once men turn away from the base upon which our culture, culture was built. Look at what's happened in the last few years. The Vietnam tragedy. The Cambodian tragedy. Read in the recent Reader's Digest the article, Murder of a Fair Country. And see how 1.2 million people, one out of every seven in the population, have been massacred since the communist takeover there. Uh, the coming betrayal by the United States of Korea, the economic chaos, uh, the energy crisis. What are all these things about? Are they accidents? Are they fortune? Or are they God? God, the holy God, dealing with our culture according to his character. Jeremiah has something to say to us. He had a difficult task. And you see, you and I, if we're Christians and if we understand anything of these things, we're in the same position in our culture as he was in his. And it's not easy. It's not good news that we announce when we tell men that they must turn back to God or our nation will experience death in the city. The first thing that we have here is the call to the office of prophet. In verses 4 through 10, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee, and before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. As that mysterious coming of the word 
that the Old Testament prophets experienced. We don't know how it came, but they knew that it came. Uh, God gripped them and God's message came into their consciousness in such a way they knew that it was the word of the Lord. And they would stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord, not these are my thoughts. The content of the call when it came to him, first the foreknowledge. Uh, the Lord said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. That distinguishing knowledge that God has of his own. Over in Romans 8, Whom he foreknew, them he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He knows them with a special knowledge because he's chosen them. This is this special knowledge, but it really is uh, saying, in effect, uh, that God is sovereign and has separated him to be God's and to be a prophet. He elaborates on this. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, meaning I set thee apart, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. God had a plan for his life. He foreordained him to be a prophet before ordained him. He previously destined or predestined him not only to be his own, but to a particular task, to be a prophet. That's true of all God's people, that we too have been foreordained or predestined not only to be his own and to be conformed to his Son, to be made like Christ ultimately, but we have been assigned a particular task within his kingdom to do. God had a plan for Jeremiah's life. God has a plan for your life. The consciousness of inadequacy on Jeremiah's part in verse 6, Then said I, Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Inadequate. I can't do it. Notice he didn't say I won't do it. He said I can't do it. I'm not equal to the task. But God had formed him. God had prepared him for the task. Moses, when God called Moses, Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. Moses said, I can't speak. I'm a man of slow speech. And what did God say? God said, Moses... Who made man's mouth? This plan was terrifying to Jeremiah. God had a plan for Jeremiah's life, but when he revealed the plan to Jeremiah, Jeremiah shrank back said, I can't do it. I'm but a child. God has a plan for your life and for my life. You say, well, I thought it was an abundant life. But it is an abundant life. You say, well, doesn't that mean it'll be easy? <laughs> Show me one man of God in Scripture who had an easy life. Show me one apostle who had an easy life. Paul? <laughs> Peter? Every one of the apostles was martyred. Jesus said, you'll be hated of all men for my name's sake. The servant's not above his master if they have... Uh, persecuted me, they will persecute you. Did God have an easy plan for Jesus' life? God had a terrifying plan for Jesus' life. It involved the cross. This commandment I received of my Father that I lay down my life for the sheep. It involved not only 
crucifixion, but damnation. That's what the cross speaks of, that Jesus Christ would be punished for our sins, give his life a ransom for many, be forsaken of his Father in the midst of his physical suffering, go through the anguishes of damnation. Because it was God's plan that through the death of his Son and the resurrection of his Son that he would save us sinners, that his Son would pay for our sins. That was the terrifying plan for Christ's life. And then that God would offer us forgiveness on the basis of his Son having paid for our sins if we would put our trust in his Son and acknowledge our sin and be willing to turn from it. That was God's plan for Christ, a terrifying plan. What did Jesus do? He said, my, li- my delight is to do thy will, O my God. I was reading a book uh, recently, Johnny, the story of a young girl. True story. Maybe you've seen her on TV. Johnny was a beautiful teenager. She accepted Christ through young life put her trust in Jesus Christ, surrendered her will to him as her Lord, became a Christian, went to Bible classes and uh, youth activities, dated different boys, Christian boys. But in time, she realized that she wasn't really living for the Lord as she should. Her life wasn't counting as it ought for him. Wasn't really being fruitful and In frustration and in recognition of that, she prayed like this. Lord, if you're really there, do something in my life that will change me and turn me around. I'm sick of the hypocrisy. I want you to work in my life for real. I don't know how. But if you can, and I'm begging you, please do something in my life to turn it around. Just a little later, she dove into a swimming pool and broke her neck sunk to the bottom like lead, lay on the bottom. They got her out. They took her to the hospital. And the verdict was that she'd never be able to move her hands or her legs again. Quadriplegic. And then she began to wrestle with the will of God and God's plan for her life. As she began to see what a terrifying plan God had for her life, she began questioning him and became bitter and resentful. God had a terrifying plan for her life. Think there's any connection between that prayer and that, quote, accident when she broke her neck? God used me. God has a plan for your life. Maybe like the one for Jeremiah and the one for Christ and the one for Johnny, it's terrifying, and we would shrink back if we were to see it, if we were to know it. We would shrink back. I'll tell you this, as you look at the world and as you look at our nation, we ought to all shrink back. It looks pretty terrifying. And God calls us to be faithful in a culture that's going down the drain. You see, the consciousness of inadequacy is part of the call, the command and the companionship of God. Verse 7, But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I send thee, and whatsoever I command thee that thou shalt speak, 
the command. God said, uh, Jeremiah, you don't have any option. You're a servant. I'm your master. And you will go to everyone that I command you. And what I command you, you will speak. I didn't ask whether or not you wanted to. I didn't ask whether you liked the plan. It's my plan for your life. But then the great statement about companionship. Verse 8, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Isn't that tremendous? Lord, I'm weak. What's that got to do with it? It's not a question of your weakness or your strength or yourself. It's a question of himself. He takes on the responsibility. I will be with you. Isn't that the same promise that Jesus made to us? Lo, I am with thee even to the end of the world. Therefore we may boldly say, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The command and companionship of God. The contact. God touches his mouth. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth, equipping him, consecrating him, uh, imparting to him power and words. The comprehensiveness of the call. Verse 10, See, I have this day set thee over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. Isn't that remarkable? God dresses this one preacher's kid. And he says to him, I've put you over the nations. God's sovereignty. Jeremiah, when you speak a word about Babylon or about these other nations around Israel, your word will be powerful because I will give you the words and you will speak the word and I will hasten to fulfill the word. I set you over the nations. You won't go to those nations, but you'll speak of those nations and prophesy of those nations and according to your word, those nations will stand or fall because I'm God. I set you over the nations. Extensive was his ministry. Extensive is our ministry. What's our ministry? I send you to the world. Go and disciple the nations. I know you don't feel adequate. That isn't the issue. You go because I commanded you and I will be with you. All power is given unto me, said Jesus. Go ye therefore. Ours is an extensive commission. His was a destructive mission to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. Destructive in its initial aspect, to root out, to pull down, because those plantings that were not of God's planting in the nation and the surrounding nations had to be torn down, those things that men trust in, those things that they worship other than the true God, those have to be destroyed. And men's minds have to be captured. And we need to pull down the vain, empty thoughts that they've erected against the knowledge of God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, says Paul, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. What is a stronghold? the vain imaginations that men erect against the knowledge of God and bring into captivity every thought. So as we go, we blessed with the word of God 
men's wrong conceptions of their safety, of their security, of their selves. And we say, it's a lie. You've been trusting in a lie. And the weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. They say, God is love. He will never send anyone to hell. And we quote the scripture that says, I say unto you, fear him that hath power to cast body and soul into hell. Yea, fear him. We bless their false thoughts. The ultimate purpose, though, is constructive to build and to plant. Once we've cleared the ground, to build a kingdom, to build men into temples for the holy God to dwell in. Ultimately, it's constructive. That was the call. A call from which Jeremiah shrank in terror. He has the communication of two visions following this. In verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Jeremiah, what seest thou? And I said, I see a rod of an almond tree. In vision, he sees the rod of an almond tree, the first vision. The almond tree was called the watcher by the Jews because it was the tree that would bud first in springtime. It watched for the change in the seasons. God uses this to speak of his activity. Verse 12, Then said the Lord unto me, Thou hast well seen, for I will hasten or watch my word to perform it. The second vision, the word of the Lord came unto me the second time, saying, What seest thou? I said, I see a seething pot, a boiling pot, and the face thereof is toward the north. And the Lord said unto me, Out of the north an evil shall break forth upon all the inhabitants of the land. What seest thou? I see a boiling pot. I see a boiling pot to the east. I see a boiling pot to the west. I see a boiling pot to the south. I see a boiling pot within our own country. What seest thou? God uh, gives an explanation of that political situation. For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdoms of the north. That's where Babylon was and associated kingdoms. Saith the Lord, and they shall come, and they shall set every one his throne at the entering of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all the walls thereof round about, and against all the cities of Judah. God says, Jeremiah, make it clear to the people of this land that these nations that come against them, this northern confederacy, when Babylon comes, that it's not fortune, it's not chance. I'm the commander-in-chief. I am bringing all of these nations against Judah, my people. Why, Lord? He gives the reason. Verse 16, And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all their wickedness because of their sin, who have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. 
the holy God dealing with the culture according to his character. That was the reason. We see the call, we see the communication of the visions. Finally, there's the consequence for Jeremiah. Verse 17, the action required of Jeremiah. Thou therefore gird up thy loins, and arise, and speak unto them all that I command thee, and be not dismayed at their faces, lest I confound thee before them. Gird up your loins, Jeremiah, roll up your sleeves, and get at it. And you speak, you faithfully deliver my word to that culture, whether they'll hear it or not. And don't you fear their faces. If you fear, if you don't have courage and attack this courageously, I will confound you before them. But if you will courageously tackle your job, trusting in me and obeying me, then, behold, I have made thee this day a defensed city and an iron pillar and brazen walls against the whole land against the kings of Judah, against the princes thereof, against the priests thereof, and against the people of the land. And they shall fight against thee, but they shall not prevail against thee, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to deliver thee. That's the same type of a call and command and commitment that comes to us. We're not to fear our fellow man. We're to go and courageously declare to him the judgment of God, the demands of God, that he turn from his evil ways, turn from his lust, turn from his idolatry and his covetousness, turn and repent and commit his life to Jesus Christ. And that's what we're called to do, and do it trusting in God to make us defense cities and brass walls and pillars, rock-like, though we may be terrified and timid like Jeremiah. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow will not overflow, for I will be with thee thy trials to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. What else do we need? What else do we need to go out and tackle the task that he's assigned to us? World evangelization, facing our own culture and all of its wickedness and evil, and all of its political chicanery, and all of its betrayal of our friends, facing it and calling a spade a spade and telling it to quit acting by expediency and start acting from principle. What more do we need than God's commitment and call to us? 
Our ministry is not going to be easy. God never said it would. It'll be abundant. It'll be blessed. Christ wasn't easy, but for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the Father on high. The cross leads to a crown. Jeremiah's wasn't easy. It was terrible, and he shrunk from it. Forty years of a difficult ministry. But one day we'll stand next to Jeremiah and we'll say, Jeremiah, was it worth it all? He'll say it was a good plan. Johnny's plan, or Johnny's, isn't easy. But now, eight years since that accident, having learned to paint with her teeth, having become an artist of some renown, having used this as a medium for witnessing to young and old around the world, she says that it's been worth it. She winds up her book by saying to a teenage girl who had asked, Are you happy? I really am. I wouldn't change my life for anything. I even feel privileged. God doesn't give such special attention to everyone and intervene that way in their lives. He allows most people to go right on in their own ways. She says, I'm actually excited at these opportunities to suffer for his sake. And if it means I can increase my capacity to praise God in the process... Circumstances have been placed in my life for the purpose of cultivating my character and conforming me to reflect Christ-like qualities. And there's another purpose. Second Corinthians explains it in terms of our being able to comfort others facing the same kinds of trials. Wisdom is, she says, trusting God and not asking why, God. Relaxed and in God's will, I know he is in control. It is not a blind, stubborn, stoic acceptance, but getting to know God and realize He is worthy of my trust. Though I am fickle and play games, God does not. He is constant, ever-loving. Ever and she winds up saying, If only one person is drawn to Christ through her suffering, and many already have been, even one person would make the wheelchair worth all that the past eight years have cost. It is a terrifying plan. And as she began to see it unfold, she shrunk. But now she looks back and says, It's a good plan. I have an abundant life. Whatever God's plan is for you, you respond in trust and obedience, and you'll find it is a good plan. He promises all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. It is a good plan. You'll find it is an abundant life. Maybe he's calling you to do something that you're shrinking back from. Maybe he's calling you to be a missionary. Maybe he's calling you to the ministry. Maybe he's calling you to some hard act of obedience that you shrink from. Something within the family. Something within your job. Something within the nation. You obey God. Know that he will be with you as you respond in faith.
Maybe you're not a Christian. God has a terrifying plan for your life if you don't become a Christian. And it may seem terrifying to you to think of becoming a Christian. But it's a wonderful plan. A blessed plan. I urge you to respond to Christ who endured his terrifying plan for you. Who was crucified. Respond and surrender your will to him and put your trust in him and discover his plan for your life. Let us pray. As our hearts are bowed, if you've been shrinking back from something he's been calling you to do, won't you right now commit yourself to go ahead and do it, that you will obey and that you trust him, that you acknowledge your servanthood, And you trust his commitment to you, his servant. And if you've never received Christ right now, won't you do that? If you really are willing and mean it, pray in your heart like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you for enduring that terrifying plan of your life for me. Father, I've been shrinking back from receiving your son. But I want Jesus Christ in my life. And I trust him now to come in and to begin to change me in any way he wants to. And I trust him to forgive my sins. Amen.